0: In some places, the idea of fine dining is a relatively recent development.
1: The whole idea of the fancy, air-conditioned, sit-down restaurant doesn't have a long history in India or Vietnam.
0: Hi, I'm Rick Steves. While the magazine Peter John Limburg writes for is usually aimed at an upmarket audience, he doesn't think you have to spend a lot of money to enjoy a genuine taste of the local culture in your travels. We'll explore the benefits of going casual coming up in a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. Plus, Don George returns as we explore food adventures all around the world.
2: You're eating love when you eat a a meal that was really well-prepared.
0: And later in the hour, we'll check in with listener travel reports from places where the news has been more serious in recent months, such as Japan, Mexico, and the recently independent nation of East Timor. We're eating with the local crowd and witnessing what people are dealing with in troubled places. Stay with us for the hour ahead. It's travel with Rick Steves. It's that time of year when Americans think a lot about food. So we're checking in with our travel buddy Don George right now to explore the flavors of the world. Recently, I was in the French Riviera in the town of Nice, and I went to this just this working-class down-home local diner. And I was with good friends. We had great friendly service. The wine just fit the food. The conviviality was magical. We had this incredible evening, and and my, my favorite thing about it was, after all the laughing and fun and taste treats... The couple at the table next to us called over the waiter and said, we want to drink the wine they're drinking, hoping that was the magical trick. But it was more than that. It was the whole context of the meal. And when I walked home that night, it occurred to me that was not a very expensive meal, but it was a highlight of the trip. You just flat out don't need to spend a lot of money to enjoy eating on the road. I'm joined by Don George, and Don is the former global travel editor for Lonely Planet Productions. He's written a lot of books, and his latest book is called A Movable Feast, Life-Changing Food Adventures from Around the World. Don, thanks for joining us.
2: My pleasure, Rick. It's great to be here.
0: When I gave that little vignette there, you know, France is famous for fancy food and, and high prices, but the theme I want to talk about is how we can really have an incredible experience without spending a lot of money when it comes to good restaurants. How do yeah. you, when you're traveling, look for uh, a restaurant that'll be a, a good value and a good experience?
2: One of the things I have found most successful is asking locals, especially going just into a shop where, you know, a normal shopkeeper who probably doesn't make a whole lot of money and say to them, if you wanted to go out and have a, a special meal, not spending a lot of money, but have really good food in this neighborhood, where do you go? They're going to tell you, and, and since they're local, they live there. They, they've had a lot of years of experience to filter out the good from the bad. I've never gotten a bad steer from doing that, and I always end up having a really good experience. And once in a while, the person will engage in conversation, and they'll actually say, you know what, I get off work at 6 o'clock. You know, Why don't you meet me here, and we'll go out together? So suddenly, you've got a local guide who you've befriended, and the whole evening can turn really magical. After that, so that that's my tip.
0: I just did that in Verona, in Italy. I was when I'm updating my guidebooks, I spend a lot of time sitting there at the desk talking to the the tourist information person, and I really enjoyed this one guy. And I, had, you know, he was very helpful, and I thought he's cool. I, I wish he was my friend. And then I got about a block away, and I, I literally stopped. I turned around, I went back, and I said, "Would you like to go to dinner with me tonight?" He jumped <laughs> at the opportunity. And we had a marvelous evening. And uh, what I learned was these Italians are just really poetic and romantic about their food. And I was just <laughs> scribbling notes on all the paper uh, tablecloths all around, and it actually became an article that I was able to write because That's I had great. befriended a local.
2: That's really great.
0: Another trick when you're, when you're traveling, I think, is to remember that Don said, you know, make friends and invite them out. Another thing would be to go to the markets and I find around the produce markets you've got all sorts of little eateries that are Mm. patronized by the local shoppers and the people who work in the market and invariably they're great values.
2: One of the most famous markets is the fish market in Tokyo, Tsukiji. If you get there early in the morning to watch the fish auction, which is really fabulous and interesting be sure to eat at one of the local sit-down places because they have the best fish there. They have unbelievably great fish there at the Tsukiji fish market. So oh, I, yeah. I agree yeah. totally. Rick, the other thing I love to do is just go to a local market and, and see what's in season, what's fresh. And you can get the cheapest feast almost anywhere in the world is some local cheese, some local bread and some local fruit. Mm. And you take that to a little park and you're in heaven.
0: You know, I did exactly that. I remember a vivid evening once. I had my cheese, my bread, my fruit, and I was sitting in front of the floodlit Chart Cathedral on a bench. Mm. And I was just mm. enjoying my, my baguette with my beautiful cheese and a little fruit and and looking at this glorious floodlit Gothic cathedral. And then to my left, there was a bum on the next bench. And I remember it was like a almost like a Rockwell painting, he leaned over to me and he had this incredible face and he was kind of backlit by the floodlighting and he handed over to me his beat-up plastic bottle filled with red table wine. <laughs> he said, he asked me in French, would I like some wine with my meal? <laughs> and I, I just thought, this is a beautiful, beautiful experience. <laughs> I I don't think I took the wine from him, but I, I, I probably offered him, he was probably just trying to get some of my sandwich. But uh, right. those kind of moments really are, and in so many cases, you know, the less you're spending, the more likely you're to meet the bum that wants to share some of his table wine with you.
2: Exactly. What a great, great experience.
0: I remember my visit to chart for that as much as the Gothic cathedral. Um, right. Let's think more about all over the world when you're trying to get a good value. Um, in India, I find that I become uh, a temporary vegetarian. It just seems like I'm I'm going with the flow and these vegetarian tallies are just a, a delight.
2: Yes, yes, and I agree. And I think there are so many places where What's sold at the roadside food stands, like Singapore, for example, has an incredible wonderland of great food stands.
0: Well, Singapore has these food circuses, right, where you've got 10 different places and then a bunch of picnic tables in the middle of the concrete court. And then, you know, if you're in the mood for this, you go there and your friend goes there and you meet at that table.
2: And you're not eating off of fancy china with, with silver cutlery. You're eating off of plastic and paper. And it's delicious. It's a feast. It's really fresh ingredients and beautifully prepared. Um, and, we, you know, America has the equivalent of that now with the, with the taco truck scene or the, the, the movable feasts that go around. Um, Portland has a lot of these. The,
0: you live in the you know, Bay Area. And uh, I remember driving up, what is it, International Boulevard in Oakland?
2: Yes, exactly. Oh, it's right.
0: incredible. I wish I had a bigger stomach, you know. You could stop at each one of those <laughs> taco trucks. And uh, I don't know what the trick is, but they are very good.
2: They are good. And they're simple. They pretty much focus on a few things and they do them really well.
0: You write in your book, uh, A Movable Feast, about uh, Ecuadorian Thanksgiving. Tell me about that.
2: Well, this was when we were in the Galapagos. It was an amazing adventure on all kinds of levels. It it happened to be at Thanksgiving time. And the staff just went out of their way to try to, the staff on the ship that we were touring, went out of their way to to come up with all these local vegetables and and fruit that they put together. They've did something in the shape of a turkey. They didn't actually have a turkey, but they, they arranged potatoes and carrots and, and they made it look like a turkey. And it was, it, it was definitely in our minds. We appreciated the gesture so much that they went out of their way to sort of honor and recognize that this was an important ceremony for us. And, uh, we did have some really nice chicken as it turned out. It was delicious chicken. Um, and just the, the notion that, they would use their local ingredients in a way that made cultural sense to us. That kind of marriage was really Mm. wonderful to me.
0: Now, you've just had this experience where you edited together the uh, essays of 38 different travel writers, uh, Simon Winchester, Anthony Bourdain, Tim Cahill, Jan Morris, and others. Of all these essays that you put together, you must have been immersed in this project. How did that change your sort of approach to eating while on the road? How did it affect you?
2: One thing it definitely made me do is just appreciate food so much more. Um, I just came back from Peru, and as you may know, one of the specialties of Peru is guinea pig. And I think if I were in an American restaurant and a Joe Field restaurant owner came up to me and slapped me on the back and said, "How'd you like one of our guinea pigs?" I'd probably say, "Do you have chicken on the menu?" <laughs> but uh, you know, in Peru, it was like I owe it to the culture. I'm here. This is what people do. I'm going to have guinea pig and. It's not something I'd go out of my way to order when I'm in Peru the next time, but it was the context of enjoying guinea pig with Peruvians around a table, uh, lots of beer, lots of noodles, lots of guinea pig. It, it all kind of added up to a really memorable and unforgettable feast. And I think the book implanted that idea in my brain that you really have to revel in whatever a, a country and a culture has to offer in the way of cuisine. It's silly to order chicken <laughs> everywhere you go around the world. Go for what they, eat, what they relish, what they revel in, and you're going to get both a great meal and a great lesson. If you're going to be an adventurer, you, you, you sally forward with an open heart and an open mind and an open stomach.
0: When in Peru, eat what the Peruvians are eating.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're
0: speaking with Don George. And Don has edited together a collection of 38 essays from great eaters. Not necessarily great travel writers, but I think it's fairly safe to call them great eaters, who have traveled all over the world and shared their experiences. His book is called A Movable Feast. Don, when you think about getting a good value for your meal, a lot of times it's finding a, a small business run by a passionate chef. Have you had that experience in your travels where you really get a chance to, to meet the person who's cooking it and and realize this is their niche. They do it with love, they do it with passion, and they've got a, a fanatic local following, and if you're a tourist of stumbling in there, you're bound for a good value.
2: Definitely. I, I had an experience like that re- very recently in Peru. I was staying in Cusco. I had a couple of meals actually in the restaurant of the hotel where I was staying, and after each one, they were so good, I just said to the chef, you know, that was really delicious, thank you very much. And my my final night in Peru, in Cusco, I was really tired, and I came back to the hotel, and I thought, you know, I'm not going to go out. I think I'll just go to the restaurant here and have a meal, and I sat down, and I was so tired, and I finally said, all I really want is soup. I don't want what's on the menu. And I went, and I sort of stuck my head in the kitchen, and by now I kind of knew the chef. And I said to him, all I really feel like is having a really nice, hearty Peruvian soup, You know, something you would eat at home after a hard day. That's all I want. Is, is it possible? Could I possibly ask you to make something like that? It wasn't on the menu. He went to work. He smiled. He said, sit down. I know just what you want. And he cooked up this thing with all kinds of local fresh produce I knew he'd picked up that morning in the market. It was the best soup I've ever had in my life. It's all I wanted. It was perfect. And he was so happy. He'd made it for me. It was one of those experiences I'll never forget just because of the bond between the chef and, and the patron.
0: Oh, and he probably came out and just sat proudly watching you devouring them,
2: <laughs> too. I mean, <laughs> he did. He wanted to know, how was it? I'm aware of that.
0: I, when I'm in a little yeah. restaurant and the yeah. chef is actually out there, you know, having a yeah. cigarette after doing a long day of cooking, <laughs> looking at me enjoying his food, and I think, he's having as much fun as I am. He loves right. to feed people and I love to eat.
2: Right. And, you know, that's one of the lessons I learned from the book is that Part of the f- pleasure of food is the preparing of it. The the love that goes into the food gets transferred to the person who eats it. You're eating love when you eat a, a meal that was really well prepared.
0: That's a very interesting comment because uh, just like people smoke a cigarette after they've made love, I was <laughs> I, I was I was in the Cinco Terre once researching all the restaurants in the Cinco and they got great restaurants. And I distinctly remember it was like close to midnight, and I was exhausted. And I was just, when I'm done researching for a day, I like to give myself just a little quiet, just a walk. And I walked across the shoreline of this town, Rio Maggiore, and all of my favorite chefs were done working, and they were <laughs> sitting alone in different bars, gazing out at the sea, sucking on their cigarette, reviewing mm. in their minds a beautiful day of feeding people. And I thought, right. I've done my work, <laughs> they've done their work, we'll do it again tomorrow. <laughs> Life is good.
2: Exactly.
0: Don George, <laughs> Don George, so fun to talk to you. And, you know, anywhere you travel, food is integral to a rich uh, and memorable experience. Don George, editor of Movable Feast, life-changing food adventures around the world. Happy travels and happy eating.
2: Thanks, Rick. Thanks for sharing this wonderful meal with me. You bet. Stay with us as we
0: keep it casual, spend less, and enjoy our travels even more on Travel with Rick Steves. We are at 877333 Rick Eating out every night can put a real strain on your travel budget, not to mention your belt. But one good solution is to find the casual, low-cost options for enjoying what the locals eat where they eat it. Helping us to explore the appeal of going casual is Peter John Lindberg. He's on the road a lot as editor-at-large at at Travel and Leisure magazine and TravelandLeisure.com. Peter, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Rick. Good to be here.
0: I know from your days as editor at Let's Go, and both of us are sort of you know, college backpackers. We were out there in the streets eating with the bums, and, and that had its certain appeal. Now you're the editor-at-large for really an upmarket magazine, and you are showcasing this whole idea that maybe it's more fun to dress down.
1: Well, exactly. I think that one of the things that we've seen lately in, in terms of our readers at Travel and Leisure, but also I think in travelers in general, is there's this new openness to... And even a new attraction to the idea of, as you said, eating low to the ground. You have these kind of informal, convivial, very local, kind of homespun, rustic places in any destination you can name—I mean, be it in Europe or here in America or in Asia or South America—it's that attraction to something that's very authentic and very real, and it also happens to be great value. But it also just gives you a really great sense of place.
0: So you talk about swank boutiques that are masquerading as thrift stores.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think we're seeing this not just in restaurants, but in hotels and certainly in in the retail culture, certainly in the States and the big cities now. You're seeing stylish places try and sort of pull off this kind of casual, informal look to them as if they're not, you know, overpriced and exclusive and super stylish. They're kind of a little more democratic looking and uh, maybe they're kind of rusticating themselves and putting on this kind of faux image of uh, homespunness
0: so that homespunness is just sort of a, a nicer conviviality is that sort of the new focus
1: i think that's what it is i think there's an attraction among people nowadays certainly the economy has exacerbated that a bit but it's always been there this kind of this feeling of of honesty and authenticity that comes with those homespun places maybe it's because they literally are homey so they make us relax more and feel more comfortable but it's kind of this democratization of shopping and restaurants and hotels and all these places that used to be sort of associated with high style and, and fanciness.
0: I, I know a lot of hotels really seem to be almost trying too hard. I mean, they're so sleek. Are you saying that new hotels now would be designed away from that sleekness?
1: I think a good number of them are, yeah. I think that, you know, we as a collective culture, um, again, speaking domestically about American styles, we maybe are getting a little tired of that slickness and that sleekness. hmm And I think there's a sameness to those kind of things. What we're definitely looking for is more of a sense of place, a, you know, feeling that we can tell where we are just by looking out the window or even in our own room. Yeah,
0: it's that homey charm again.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that's really appealing for a number of people. It's ironically, or maybe appropriately, it's a, a big trend in cities where people you know, don't necessarily feel cozy and, and homey and, uh, and rustic. Uh.
0: It is interesting when you think about it because it's it's sort of big business co-opting what is the basis of backpacker travel or, or people-to-people travel or staying in B&Bs and eating in little mom-and-pop restaurants. Now they've got big corporate plans to create that charm, in a more profitable sort of setting.
1: Right. So the sort of the inauthenticity of, of authenticity, or you know, it's it's enough to make one's head spin. But uh, I think, yeah, I think there's a cynicism to that too. But for the most part, I think a lot of these places really are genuinely, you know, as they present themselves. Charming. Genuinely charming. Exactly.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Peter Lindbergh, who's the editor at large for Travel and Leisure, and he's been writing a little bit lately about the allure of the casual. And Peter, in your article, you talk about this booming bistronomy scene, gastronomic bistros, or what's that all about in Paris now?
1: Uh, Yeah, the bistronomy scene is quite the trend now in Paris, which has always been great at that kind of rustic, homey restaurant style that we've been talking about. In this case, the bistronomy restaurants, places like Chateaubriand, which has gotten a lot of acclaim recently— are really embracing that informal, super casual kind of vibe that, that a great bistro has always had, but they're also combining it with real ambition and creativity in the kitchen. So they're, you know, each night they're often changing the menu once a day, and they're bringing out multiple courses that are really inventive, and there's a lot of thought going into the food. It's not just sort of dishing out bistro classics.
0: Okay, so it's not downscaling in a lesser quality sense. I mean, we're not talking less sophisticated food. We're just talking really great food, but in a homey atmosphere? Is that the idea?
1: That's exactly it, yeah. And I think more and more around the world, you're you're seeing that ambition and atmosphere don't have to go hand in hand and that, you know, you can actually have a relaxed place, but not relaxing your standards or your, your creativity. And sort of the arbiters of quality and success
0: in the restaurant world are embracing that. Didn't they recently name the world's top restaurant a restaurant like this?
1: Yeah, that restaurant Noma in Copenhagen, actually, which has been there for a number of years, was recently named the number one restaurant by a British magazine uh, in the world. And I mean, the cooking is fantastic. Uh, The chef there is really a super creative force, very dedicated to pushing the, the boundaries of what Nordic cuisine can be. And yet the atmosphere itself is concrete floors and bare walls and minimal decoration, minimal sort of trappings of luxury as we're used to in other restaurants and traditionally. But, of course, the service is wonderful, the, the cooking is top-notch, right. you really feel cared for, but you don't necessarily feel like you're being distracted from the food. Like you have to dress up. Dress up, exactly. You can go in there in a T-shirt and jeans and you'll feel absolutely at home.
0: I'm speaking with Peter Lindeberg, and Peter's the Editor-at-Large for Travel and Leisure. We're talking about uh, the allure of the casual, how fancy places are being a little more casual and they're finding it's a successful formula. Now, we've talked about Copenhagen and Paris. What's an example in the United States that we might think of in the terms of minimal restaurants?
1: Well, one of the highlights of my year in terms of um, my dining out, and I I do travel around the country and the world uh, eating in restaurants, this is one of the highlights was my meal last year in Los Angeles at a place called Animal, which was just a real revelation, and it really opened my eyes to this whole idea of casual dining and the kind of redefinition of what fine dining means hmm. because animal is much like noma very spare to the point of almost ascetic in terms of its you know its atmosphere i mean there's really no atmosphere to speak of there's no decor it's just basically one big box of a room quite loud usually playing rock music of some sort everyone's very very informal in terms of the attitude of the servers and you know it's bare top tables that kind of thing but the food is on a whole another level entirely And it's actually quite affordable for what it is. This is sort of creative cooking that's still rustic and still earthy and almost comfort food in some sense, but it also is done on another level of of innovation and care taken in these ingredients.
0: And how is the casual atmosphere impacting the presentation of the food?
1: I think it somehow fits with the food because the food is kind of... I mean, I don't want to call it peasant food because that sort of implies...
0: But I mean, you're not going to get that fancy, um, what, nouveau cuisine sort of high food where they stack everything up.
1: Yeah, exactly. Vertical food, right, right. right. The presentation is is fine. It's not, um, you know... Not over the top, then. It's not over the top. You know, sometimes you go to those places and you feel like that's distracting you from the fact that the food isn't all that interesting.
0: The thought then is, how does it impact service? Are we just getting rustic service or or is it just a matter of uh, less polish and, and more honesty and authenticity in the service?
1: I think that's appealing to a number of people, and it's not just a question of, of youth, although I, th- I think that definitely skews toward a younger crowd. But I think that, that informal service actually is starting to appeal to more people because it it makes you relax. And the problem with formal service is that it actually has the opposite effect. It actually makes you feel stiff because it is stiff. And it's, yeah. you know, there's that, that the rigor of tradition and ritual and Am I using the right fork? You know, should I be? Is this is this my waiter? or Is this one of you know five busboys who are coming mm-hmm. out? Who do I ask for to fill my water glass?
0: Then you get uptight, and it kind of translates into the whole eating experience.
1: Right, and isn't the whole point of eating to be you know on one hand nourished and also to be transported and to relax and feel
0: to have a relaxing experience? I've noticed, and I really appreciate this in in a good restaurant. If there's less formality in the manners. There's more focus on the information. The wait staff will take time and explain to me how excited they are about this or that, whatever they're serving.
1: Exactly. And I think you find that at animals, certainly, and you find that at a lot of these these new places where the, uh, the cooking is, is, again, ambitious and, and real committed. But, yeah, chances are your waiters, you know, he might be wearing a ratty T-shirt or he might be crouching down beside your table and calling you dude, but... He's still going to know, you know, where the beets were grown and, you know, how they made that cocktail or what the cooking technique that went into that particular dish was.
0: Peter, I know you're enthusiastic about traveling through Asia, and I've done enough traveling in Asia to know that, you know, something very appealing about Asia is exactly what we're talking about, the casual food scene, you know, uh, even street food. Tell me how how this sort of casual approach to cuisine works for you in Asia.
1: Well, you know, a lot of my my traveling recently, the focus has been on food and, and certainly the writing about food. Because I'm just constantly always hungry on the road, so even when I'm not eating, I'm usually looking for food or looking at it. You know, I'm obsessed with like foreign grocery stores and markets and whatnot. Because to me, food is basically sightseeing, but you get to eat it. So in Asia, that's particularly the case, and I I do travel a lot in South and Southeast Asia. I think that there's really a whole different notion of what dining out means in a lot of Asia, certainly in India and Vietnam, where I've spent a lot of time. You have to remember that in in both those places, the notion of a, a proper restaurant culture is kind of a young and still novel concept. The whole idea of the fancy air-conditioned sit-down restaurant doesn't have a long history in India or Vietnam, which is why, you know, in both countries until recently, most of those fancy sit-down restaurants used to be located in hotels because they were mainly for travelers, so they'd have English menus and air conditioning, et etc.
0: And they would be tuned into the sensitivities of travelers, so try to lessen the culture shock, I would suppose.
1: Sure. Everyone always assumes you're going to get the bland food and the not-so-spicy, that kind of thing, you know, at the, at the hotel restaurants. But you'll be comfortable.
0: <laughs> Generally on the road, that's exactly what I find, and unless I have good reason not to, I'll, I'll make a point to avoid the restaurant at the hotel and get out on the streets. When I think about some of my best memories in Asia, you know, they're at bus stations in Thailand, and you've got all these noodle shops just on collapsible tables in a big circle.
1: Exactly. That's one of the great highlights of it. And, and, you know, because they don't have a proper restaurant culture, that's not to say that they don't eat out. I mean, they eat out all the time, as you mentioned, in street stalls and snack stands and little sidewalk kitchens, you know, all over the street. And those places are actually generally serving fantastic food, you know, and it's also the kind of home-style food that their, you know, people's mothers and grandmothers would be making them if they could cook as well as the lady on the sidewalk, you know.
0: You've written that for you in Southwest Asia, a good rule of thumb is fluorescent lights are good, incandescent lights are not good. What do you mean by that?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I usually say there's, there's an inverse relationship between ambiance and, uh, and authenticity, you know, between the atmosphere of a place and the, and the quality of the cooking. And that's certainly true. I know in Vietnam, where I've spent a lot of time, I, you know, generally if you pass by a place with a fluorescent light kitchen and maybe like a toilet paper dispenser for a napkin, you know, yeah. you're probably going to get a good meal. <laughs> maybe it's just you can assume
0: there's limited energy, and what are they going to put their focus on? You know, good food or fancy lighting?
1: Exactly. And a lot of those places that are the sort of fancier places, you know, they're perfectly great for a cocktail or something or a romantic right. kind of aperitif before your dinner. But yeah. you know, the food isn't all that good. And and also, by the way, it's not necessarily any safer or cleaner. In fact, it might actually be less so because it's been sitting around for ages. No one's ordered the lobster thermidor in three weeks.
0: You know, that's a very practical point because a lot of people just assume the restaurant at the hotel will be safer than the place out in the street. But what I've learned in Asia is safety is a matter of turnover. And in a restaurant in a hotel, they'll have all sorts of variety on the menu to cater to the needs of the tourists and rarely serve that stuff, whereas out on the street, it's a small menu and they're just cranking it out and things are probably less likely to be out in the sun or or covered with bugs and so on that way. And it's ironically healthier to eat in the cheaper places.
1: You're absolutely right. I think that's absolutely true. I've eaten in in both India and Vietnam for years on the street and and have never actually gotten sick from street food. Where I have gotten sick is when I've eaten in a hotel that's dead empty and you order a dish that probably has been in the fridge for weeks.
0: So that's a good rule of thumb is if you're concerned about your health in Asia, fast turnover, more healthy. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Peter Lindbergh, and Peter is the editor-at-large for Travel and Leisure magazine. We're talking about the trend toward casual dining all around the world, specifically Asian street food. And our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can call us anytime, or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Angel's on the line in Pasadena, California. Angel, thanks for your call. Hey, no problem.
3: How are you? Good. You know, when I think of food in Southeast Asia, I I did a seven-week backpacking trip, and, you know, when we travel to Europe, we often have to eat at markets and things like that to kind of skip on money, but street food is so, so prevalent uh, in Southeast Asia that I found it no problem to stay very full at a very, very low price, and I found that you could easily get into the culture so easily by going up to one of the street stands and you know, Thailand on the streets of Bangkok or in in Indonesia and kind of go about things that way.
0: So now, why do you like Thailand so much for street food?
3: Uh, Because it's readily available everywhere, and, you know, the the Thai people, they, they eat all the time, and it's so, so inexpensive. So often I was the only Caucasian person at a street stand full of, you know, local people ordering whatever my my new friend was ordering yeah. and it was just a great great way of, of making friends and usually you know a plate of pad was so inexpensive and you know you get the australian backpackers who live off of the banana pancakes but you know if you want to be adventurous i'd say stick to the street food and to be truthful in the eight weeks that i was all over southeast asia i never never ever got sick once
0: and when you're in japan what, what are your memories of the good food
3: Japan, for me, my favorite is the um, Yakitori lane behind um, the Shinjuku train station. In English, it's translated to memory lane. And I think I I found it off of the Lonely Planet uh, guidebook. And it's just one little, tiny, slim, narrow Yakitori joint next to another. It's a whole alleyway full of them, and the steam is filling out onto the streets. And again, you know, mostly full of older, you know, 60-year-old... Japanese gentlemen, but, you know, what a blast to to sit next to one of them and order a beer and kind of do a sampling of the different yakitori plates.
0: And compare that to the experience of the majority of travelers who are probably back at the hotel reading an English menu and eating with other uh, international travelers.
3: Well, you know, it would be so easy for somebody to, to eat at a yakitori um, restaurant because the chefs are cooking the food almost right in front of you and at the window. So you can go from one spot to another and see what the chef is growing up and if that looks good then nice. I mean, me on in and, and order up some food
0: no problem with the language barrier then
3: <laughs> well you know there, there's there's some pointing and nodding and bowing and things like that and and a but, spirit
0: of adventure i would imagine
3: yes absolutely All absolutely right.
0: angel from pasadena thanks for the call thank you peter what about that tokyo what are your memories in tokyo for eating
1: Oh gosh, for Tokyo, I think I mean I know the yakitori street that he's talking about and that is absolutely wonderful, but one of my favorite things to do is get up really really early. I mean, we're talking before dawn, sometimes 4:35 in the morning and go down to the Tsukiji fish market, which is the the largest fish market in the world and it's where uh, all all of Japan basically gets their fish through. It's it's in, right in the heart of Tokyo. Everything starts very early in the morning. But the best thing about it is first you know, you walk around the stalls and work up an appetite seeing these amazing Wow. You know, giant yeah. tuna carcasses and whatnot. But then all surrounding the market are these little very small kind of hole in the wall, sushi joints. You know, basically you line up, they open at six in the morning for the basically there for the traders and for the for the workers. And you just sit there at the bar and you you know, again, you have a beer and you and you sit there and, and Devour unbelievably fresh, pristine sushi from the market right next door, and it's it's all quite affordable considering what great quality it is.
0: I can envision sort of a cacophony of, of sounds and, and energy and people moving about in the market.
1: Absolutely, it feels like a you know it feels like you're like kind of like a New York diner or coffee shop because it's it's noisy and the plates are clattering around and everyone's sort of shouting and smiling and laughing and you know, you're drinking beer at six in the morning and ah. and you also realize that you know this food is this. Here in America I think we think of sushi, especially good sushi, as like kind of like a real fancy kind of ethereal temple like thing that you you know you gotta to pay the oh, top dollar right, and you gotta yeah. dress up for. But but there you realize it's really just kind of a work day food. You know, it's it's just great nourishment and it's absolutely delicious.
0: Peter, you're you're stroking my appetite. This reminds me of the joy of eating all around the world and how, in so many cases, The less you spend, not because you're saving money, but because you're going casual, you're eating down and close to the ground with the local people, the less you spend, the more you experience and the
1: more you taste. Well said, Rick. I couldn't agree more.
0: Peter Lindberg, editor-at-large for Travel and Leisure, eating casually and enjoying cultures all over the world. Best wishes with your travel writing and thanks for being with us. Thanks so much. In case you hadn't heard, two of the towns on the scenic Cinque Terre coastline of Italy that we love so much are just beginning to recover from deadly flash floods and landslides that followed record rainfall on October 25th. Every business along the main street and harbor in Vernazza was inundated with water, mud, and rocks. And more than six feet of mud and debris devastated Monterozzo, as well as several other towns inland nearby. We have photos, news updates, and links to relief agencies where you can help. It's in the travel news section at ricksteves.com. Right now, let's check in with listeners to share what they've learned from travels to places with their own serious challenges. We'll start with Judy in Vancouver, Washington, in a call we recorded just a couple months ago. She had just returned from helping out with the cleanup from the tsunami and earthquake in northeast Japan.
4: Hey, I just got back from Japan a week ago with a group of 80 or so. Flew into Tokyo, Narita, and then we went on up to Sendai, which was, you know, really affected by the tsunami and earthquake. And we went up there to do some volunteer work for a couple of days. And it was amazing. I've never seen anything, you know, never been to a disaster like that. You see it on TV and in print, and you go, my God, this is horrible. But you go up there and see it, and it's just unbelievable. And even after several months, it's still just horrendous.
0: Do you mean torn down buildings? Do you mean Oh,
4: torn down buildings, cars still in the river, houses still floating in the river.
0: So almost hey. like Japan has not been able to mobilize and clean this up.
4: Well, it is so overwhelming. For example, this town where we went was Kesanuma, which was one of the really, really terribly affected places. And it is now has an additional problem of not just cleaning up from the tsunami and earthquake, but the whole land under the Main Street sank. You know, it has dropped in elevation. So now twice a day, you have knee-high water coming in during the tide.
0: Wow, so so this has um, changed the whole makeup of the coast.
4: The topography, uh uh-huh. And it was down and dirty. Where I was, I mean, we were picking up rotting fish out of this lady's yard, and we Hmm. were just mucking up this stuff. I mean, it was like you saw lives, kids' books. Right. You know, dishes, broken dishes. Mm. That part was really heartbreaking.
0: I, I would think it's adding salt to the wound when nobody visits, so there's the tourist industry is completely
4: exactly. flattened. Exactly, yeah. The gentleman that set this tour up is a man by the name of Sho Dozono, who owns Azumano Travel down here in Portland. And he has done these flights of friendship, like to New Orleans and then to New York at nine eleven, and I believe a group went to Phuket. A guy that's one of the head guys at, at the Japan Travel Agency said, please go back and tell America that, you know, Japan is open for tourists. He goes, I think they think that everything is has fallen down and the whole country has been radiated. And, in fact, that's not the case.
0: Were you concerned about your safety from no. a civic unrest point of view? No, no,
4: no, 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 no. There's none never, of that. Never, never in Japan would you find that.
0: Right. And then from a radiation point of view, no. you're sure that that's no problem? No, I, I'm
4: i not glowing.
0: No. <laughs> now, this, you mentioned this organization in Portland. We can put this on our website. Uh-huh. But this is an organization that organizes trips of concerned Americans to disaster areas when it's safe to go back?
4: Exactly just to kind of get people to go to these places and go, hey, you know, people are still living here. They need to have you come and support them.
0: And in so many cases, when it drops out of the headlines, it drops out of people's awareness. Exactly.
4: After the group left, I continued on down and went and visited my Japanese friends in Yokohama and Kyoto. And I can tell you the Shinkansen, the bullet train... When it says it's going to be there at 11.35, it was there
0: at 11.35. If we're encouraging people to go to Japan, if I want to go to Japan and experience the warmth of the culture and the punctuality of the bullet train and all that, in spite of the tsunami, in spite of the devastation, Japan is still Japan
4: as far as the experience goes. And they are so, I mean, it got embarrassing how many times they were, you know, like, thank you so very much, oh, you're so brave for coming, and, you Uh
0: know. And it's just a shame that this would be... Uh, yeah. misunderstood to the point of driving exactly. people away from their dreams of going to Japan.
4: Exactly. And
0: Japan needs this more than ever. They don't need charity. Yeah. They need no. people going there and stoking their economy.
4: Exactly. Wow. Because okay. I went and saw, you know, the, the big Buddha, the Daibutsu down in Kamakura, mm-hmm. which is this quaint, charming town south of Yokohama by mm-hmm. about 30 minutes on the train, Yeah. And I was like, I was shocked. I saw maybe three or four gaijin, foreigners that I could actually identify as foreigners.
0: Societies all over the world are are reliant, little businesses on tourism. And when people overreact to a headline, it devastates these these small businesses. And if you're a person who can see through the hysteria in the headlines, you go and you help more and you receive a warmer welcome. Exactly. And you have a great memory. Now, remember, most of the real attractions of Japan, I think, are from Tokyo South. but The devastation is up north. And and the classic attractions of Japan, in my mind, are further south.
4: Yeah. Two different
0: areas. It's like Washington State or California, basically. Exactly. So, and I can understand how a vast segment of Japanese society would be traumatized. Would you say it's demoralized as well? No. No. I don't
4: think so. I think they have that, you know, like I said, this gambate and spirit of just let's keep going. You know, we can get over this. Let's do it. But the problem with that, too, is now, you know, months later... People are tired of hearing about it. So, like, when mm. I was down in Kyoto, there was, like, banners of people trying to get people to, you know, donate money for habitat, for humanity up mm. in Sendai, and for pets and stuff, because pets have been abandoned in some of these areas. Right. And I didn't see one person drop money in the bucket, as they say. Huh. That part is kind so of So that's sort disheartening.
0: of uh, the fatigue that way. Well, yeah. Judy, thank you for giving us that report. Good for you for actually... Taking the initiative and going over there and making a difference, and probably a very rich travel experience from having oh, done yeah. this as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Thanks, Judy, mm. in Bye Vancouver, now. See, Washington. Bye-bye. Bye now. Brock's on the phone in Stephenville, Texas. Brock, thanks for your call.
5: Hey, Rick, glad to be here.
0: Yeah, do you have some ideas on traveling off the beaten path?
5: Well, uh, I'd say Mexico City qualifies in that regard. I went there as a student in 1996 and had the opportunity to live there for six months, and then. Almost 10 years later, I had the chance to move back, and I stayed for almost two years working, and I just want to say that it's a really beautiful place. I just loved it, and I'll always have great memories of of my time spent there.
0: Now, how can you enjoy a city of 20 million people in the heat?
5: You know how New York City is broken down into boroughs. It's just like that in Mexico City, too. So I live in a, a neighborhood called Roma, which was You know, very close together. Everyone lives close together, obviously, but you still have space, and there are parks and things you can do outside.
0: Does the city function in a way that's not exasperating for an American who's used to efficiency and reliability?
5: Yes, it does. It it depends on whether or not you're willing to live in the same place that you work. For example, my job was one neighborhood away. I walked 10 minutes each way to get there. I had a grocery store, you know, three blocks from the home that I lived in. I think are, are you saying
0: it's it's better to live near where you work so you don't have to deal with rush hour and giant commutes and stuff?
5: A- absolutely. Oh, okay. The The subway is functional. They have uh, fairly nice French subway trains. They're electric. They're fairly modern, but, I mean, you have to be able to stand a crowd, and, I mean, As a guy, I I never experienced this, but many of the women that I knew down there had either experienced firsthand being groped on the train or things that were very unpleasant like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was personally, you know, my pocket picked a couple times riding the subway. But the only time I had to ride a subway was to get to the other side of town. You know, most of the time I just was on foot for nearly the whole two years I lived there. I didn't drive a car at all. I simply walked everywhere. Okay, now let's and, uh, just talk about
0: safety for a minute here. We've got groping and we've got pickpocketing. Okay, you're in a big city out on public transit. I suppose that can happen in any big city. What about the violent drug kind of war crime that we keep reading about? You know, if, if you read about Mexico in the headlines these days, what, 30,000 people have been killed in the drug war. 30,000 people. Uh, is this spilling into the everyday life of Mexico City residents, or is this mostly in border cities that happen to be the front line in the drug war?
5: I would say it is not filling into the normal everyday life in Mexico City itself. In fact I felt very safe and secure there. You know, the pickpocketing the, on a day to day basis I went to and from my house at all hours. I never felt threatened a single time. In fact, I just think there are so many people there. Everyone minds their manners and it's it's very much a comfortable place. You just have to know the rules, yeah. you know, yeah. don't walk around with a huge purse, you know that's common
0: <laughs> sense woman. for travelers. My girlfriend and I just went down to Mexico City you know, is it is it comfortable? And uh, this is what I do in my work, is if people are nervous about a place I like to go there and find out for sure what the deal is, I honestly felt safer on the streets of Mexico City at midnight than I would have in a lot of American big cities. Um, I noticed different subway stations were actually singled out as stations that had extra security, so people who were concerned about their security would know, you know, where the particularly safe places were. There was plenty of police presence, and that was just designed to keep the... Anxiety down. It seemed like, and uh, I noticed they didn't allow alcohol out on the streets, so it was it was quite a controlled situation.
5: Yeah, I would have to agree with you on all fronts there. Later, I had a bicycle when I lived there, and I did a little more exploring and rode through different neighborhoods, and I basically felt safe everywhere I went. The closer you get to downtown, uh, there were some areas that I probably would rather not, you know, be on foot at night. It's
0: the biggest city in the Western Hemisphere. It's got some dangerous neighborhoods. You know, what struck me, Brock, is. It's just a couple hours by air from major cities in the United States. You can zip down there for an easy three-day weekend from uh, L.A. or Houston or or Miami or whatever. It's very exciting to think of this, what most Latin Americans look at as the New York of our hemisphere, as an easy-access quick trip from the United States.
5: Absolutely. And uh, let me tell you, the most breathtaking thing was for me flying into that city for the very first time. I grew up in a town... Actually, I grew up on a farm outside of a town of 15,000, right smack dab in the middle of Texas. And when the plane comes over, you know, Paseo de Cortes, you know, you see the two volcanoes as you fly in. The city is just amazingly, it's just huge. You know, it's just breathtaking. On a crisp
0: day when there's not as much smog as normal, I think, or on a bright evening when you can see the lights just blanketing the horizon, 20 million people goes on and on and on.
5: Oh, absolutely. Would take car trips on the weekends. Come back at night sometimes, and just driving over the mountains to get back. Just kind of stunning the uh, the number of people. But you just hop in a car and an hour away, you can be uh, in a really beautiful. Uh, there's a national forest there called La Marquesa that has just you know very beautiful, tranquil pine forest with just these amazing evergreen trees. That they're bigger than anything I've ever mm. seen in New Mexico or Colorado. I guess the growing season is so long. So we would get away to the mountains on the weekends and just. You know, spend time outside, rent horses, ride around,
0: and in the springtime when the when the flowers are blooming,
5: oh, amazing! Uh, the the trees, these uh, kind of violet-colored blooms, pop out, and they're all over the place.
0: It's an amazing city. You know, I went to the great uh, archaeological museum there, and I saw dioramas or whatever of commerce on the streets in the pre-Columbian days. And then I realized, you know, commerce is on the streets in the same crazy, chaotic, but uh, steady business metabolism way in our generation. It's just people are wearing modern clothes, but it's the same sort of scene. It's just a a human jungle there in Mexico City, and it is a fascinating place to check out.
5: Absolutely. You're talking about the Anthropology Museum that has the incredible collection of pre-Hispanic objects. It was
0: great. That's worth a whole day on itself.
5: And you can get in for, I think, admission at something like $5 if you have a student ID. I mean, it was sure there are places you can also blow a lot of money if you feel like doing that. Mm after all it's such a big place like you say
0: but it is accessible and i think you and i could uh, remind people that you may read about headlines and drug violence and all that kind of thing but that is basically the killing fields of the front on the of the drug war up near the border mexico city is. is a big city it comes with normal big city problems and you know risks that you'd find anywhere especially in the developing world but uh, a smart traveler can enjoy mexico city Very responsibly, and a lot of Americans I know have fallen in love with the place where they've actually sold everything and moved there.
5: Really? Well, I I too have American friends who now reside there and they they plan to stay, and I plan to go back and visit them. All right. Well,
0: Brock in Mm -hmm. Stephenville, Texas, thanks so much for your report on Mexico City.
5: Hey, I really enjoyed talking to you, Rick.
0: All right. Happy travels. Thank you. Bye. We're checking in with listeners like you who've traveled to places where they've learned a lot from observing the local challenges. Brian's on the phone in Portland, Oregon. Where have you been traveling lately?
6: East Timor, where I was for two weeks.
0: Wow, East Timor. Now that's tell me what that was like.
6: You know, Rick, it was a fantastic country to visit. It's a unique uh, little enclave in the middle of Indonesia. Um, it had been a Portuguese colony for 500 years and achieved its independence only in 1975 to be promptly invaded by Indonesia nine days later and had a third of its population unfortunately killed through a very brutal occupation that lasted 25 years.
0: So this is one of these desperately poor places that is still suffering from its colonial heritage.
6: Yes, and it wasn't just one colony. It was a colony of Portugal. It was a colony of Indonesia. It was briefly occupied by the Japanese, and they really have had a long-suffering history, but now the future looks bright.
0: Now, as a traveler, if you visit East Timor... How do you get there, and then when you get there, how can you uh, comfortably experience this place?
6: There are three major airports where you can depart from to arrive in East Timor. Those are Singapore, the Bali Airport, and uh, Darwin, Australia.
0: And then when you get there, do you find the infrastructure for a, a tourist who needs the creature comforts and the security of a nice hotel? Can you find that?
6: Absolutely. In daily there's been a proliferation of new hotels since independence in 2002, Many of the hotels are Portuguese-managed. Huh. The Portuguese are back in a big way after independence. The East Timorese looked to them during the period of Indonesian occupation for support and received it, and now there is a huge amount of Portuguese influence back again in Dili, the capital city, and the second city, Baucau, as well as development workers throughout the country.
0: And in spite of that, Brian, can a, an adventurer get off the beaten path to the point where he finds an economy that's not tapped into the globalization sort of scene that actually feels like a pre-globalized economy?
6: Uh, I think like in many parts of Indonesia, uh, outside of Bali and the major tourist destinations, East Timor being now a newly independent country is a a very rural agrarian economy, and uh, you can get up into the countryside and really be very far away from everything or go to a beach and feel like you're totally isolated.
0: Okay, so if somebody wants to get thoroughly off the beaten path... Brian, in Portland, Oregon, would vote for East Timor. Is that right?
6: That's right. Uh, It's also one of the world's top dive destinations, being at one of the corners of what they call the Coral Triangle. It's the richest marine ecosystem worldwide, and that is because of the wide variety of different corals that are available there to support many different types of sea life.
0: I forget my geography there, but is it an island that's split? Part of it's East Timor and part of it's... uh... East
6: Timor is on the east side of the island of Timor, Uh, The west side is still a part of Indonesia proper. The people there are a a mix of ethnicities. There's 16 different local languages and one which is kind of the common language. They are of the same heritage in some of those ethnic groups as the people from Papua
0: New Guinea. Okay, because my experience in Papua New Guinea was less of a colonial heritage than I think you're talking about with East Timor, but both struggling economically societies.
6: Right. Uh, You do have a mestizo class of people who are still very influential in local politics and economics. The president, Jose Ramos Horta, obviously has a Portuguese name. Uh, The population is 98% Catholic today. So I think that's significantly different from some of the things that you see in other parts of that part of the world. And uh, prior to the Indonesian occupation in 1975, only 30% of the population was Christian, being Catholic, uh, due to the Portuguese influence.
0: Really? So it's picked up its enthusiasm for Christianity in its post-colonial era?
6: No, it picked up during the colonial era, and that's because uh, during the genocide that ensued, along with the Indonesian occupation, when approximately a third of the population was killed, the people really looked to Christianity and to Archbishop Bello for hope, as a way to survive the brutality of the, Whoa.
0: and consequently today, ninety some percent of the island is practicing Catholics. That is true. All right, and, fascinating. And uh,
6: Bishop Bishop Bello and Jose Ramos Horta both received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1996 as a result.
0: What a fascinating opportunity from a travel point of view. It is Brian, Portland, Oregon. Happy travels.
6: Thank you.
5: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York City and at the University of California, Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism for their production help today. We've arranged most of the interviews from past editions of the show by the countries we discuss. They're available as podcasts and as apps that you can download to your portable player or smartphone look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe Package. It's on the front page of our website at ricksteves.com. We'll see you again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves.
1: Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel, and his country, city, and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat, and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.